recorded for us in John's Gospel. So uh, as we look at each of those conversations, we'll have the, the verses up on the screen and you can follow along that way. If you'd like to follow along in a paper Bible and you don't have one here with you uh, this morning, our ushers are coming down the aisle and if you'll just signal them somehow, uh, they would be happy to put a Bible in your hands and you can use that. And if you don't have one uh, at home, please feel free uh, to take this one with you as, uh, just as a gift. We think everyone should have a Bible. It's a great, great book. Well, a number of years ago now, there was uh, a news headline uh, that, that came out of a small town in western Norway. I'm not going to try to pronounce the town, but uh, the news story hit the Associated Press, and then, and then it sort of went viral. It, it hit all of the news feeds around the world. Haldis Gunderson uh, experienced what many uh, would consider a modern-day miracle. Uh, she turned on the tap at her kitchen sink, and beer flowed freely <laughs> from the tap. However, two flights down, uh, the customers at the Big Tower pub were horrified to find out that plain water was pouring out of the beer taps. Uh, was it a miracle? Uh, had God poured out his blessing on Haldis and her husband so they would never have to run to the store at, at halftime again? Had he maybe answered the prayers of, of lonely wives whose husbands spent far too much time at the pub? As it turned out, uh, it was some clumsy plumbing that was to blame. Someone had accidentally connected the beer hoses in the pub to the water pipes of Gunderson's apartment and vice versa. When a reporter asked Haldus if uh, turning the water into beer was a blessing, she said, not really. The beer was flat. <laughs> so, why am I telling you this story? Uh, the, the conversation that we're looking at this morning takes place in the context of, of one of Jesus' most famous miracles. Uh, that is, of course, turning the water into wine. And unlike Haldis Gunderson's story, we see that this was not... Uh, just a plumbing mix-up. Uh, in fact, it was way more uh, than just a miracle, if, if that can be. And, and John will explain some of that to us. Uh, but before we dive in and, and look at this story, let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Lord, sometimes when we come to these very familiar stories, it's uh, difficult for us to step back and and look at it in fresh ways. And I pray that you would help us to do that this morning. And as we do so, we pray that you would speak to us, speak to us in ways that we will somehow know that we have heard from God. And, and may we take those words that are spoken to us then and apply them to our lives. We, we pray that we would be different people when we leave this place than when we came in this morning. And we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. 
that's on page 853 of the Bibles that the ushers handed out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through uh, the story. It's just 11 verses long. And then we'll look more closely at what this might have to say to us today. So John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine left. Jesus replied, woman, what has this concern of yours to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother told the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the very top. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the head steward. And they did. When the head steward tasted the water that had been turned to wine, not knowing where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this first sign in Cana of Galilee. In this way, he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I want to make a comment about this 11th verse here before we back up and go to the the top of the story. Uh, We often refer to this as the miracle of turning the water into wine. Uh, But interestingly, that's not the word that John uses. Uh, The Greek word, uh, most common Greek word for miracle is dynamis. It it means uh, spectacular power, even we could say explosive power, because it's the word that we get our English word dynamite from. But John uses a different word. He uses the word for sign. Uh, It it means to signal something that's coming. Um, I didn't do this for this reason, but I, but I was thinking, for some of you this morning, um, me wearing jeans and flannel is like, oh, yeah, just a regular guy, right? I'm comfortable with that, right? For others of you, you're like, where's his jacket? <laughs> He's in the pulpit, where's his jacket, right? And, and we could look at it just in that way, but uh, what I want you to know this morning that these clothes are actually a sign. They're a sign that in about three hours, I'm going on vacation. (laughs) They're a sign of something wonderful coming, right? So John tells us that this event is a sign. And, And this information needs to inform how we read this story and and listen even to this conversation that Jesus has with his mother because he's pointing ahead to something else. And if we pay attention, uh, we might, like the disciples did, see something of of Jesus' glory revealed and and, uh, sort of kindle 
our faith, our belief in him. So John begins the story by uh, setting some context. Uh, There was a wedding at Cana. Uh, John doesn't tell us whose wedding it is, but the fact that Jesus and his disciples had been invited and the fact uh, that uh, Mary was also there suggests that it was somebody uh, that Jesus knew well or that knew Jesus well. Um, John tells us that, that Mary was there, Jesus' mother, and as the story unfolds, she seems to feel uh, some responsibility for things going smoothly at this, this event, this wedding feast. Uh, now, in ancient Near East culture, the responsibility for the wedding, a little different than our culture, responsibility for the wedding is on the groom's family, Right? Uh, when, when our daughter, we have three kids, two boys, one girl. When our daughter was born, I promise you, this is, this is true, the first words out of my mouth were, I'm buying a wedding. <laughs> Dads do that. They understand that that's kind of what goes along with this, right? Uh, but in the ancient Near East culture, it, it was the father of the groom, uh, uh, who was responsible. I, I was thinking, I wonder if in Eastern countries they have a father of the groom movie that the dads <laughs> weep at, you know? I, I don't know. Uh, but Mary feels responsible somehow for this. And this has led a lot of Bible scholars to believe that the groom was either a relative of, of Jesus uh, or maybe a very close friend of Mary. Uh, Dallas Jenkins, uh, who directs um, uh, the, the, the show The Chosen, many of you have seen that. Um, uh, Jenkins chose to portray the mother of the groom as Mary's best friend. And I'm going to mute my mic for just a second so I can cough and get this frog out of here, Okay. Excuse me and thank you. So, um, so uh, in The Chosen, uh, Mary is, is portrayed as the, the mother of the groom's best friend. That, that may be. Uh, most of us have been to a wedding, I think. Uh, some of us, many of us, have been in a wedding. Weddings are a big deal. Um, most girls... Start dreaming of weddings when they're still very small. And parents of both the bride and the groom want things to go perfectly for their child on this very special day, right? I often tell brides, this is your day, right? This is your day. Live it up, you know? Make it great. But if you've ever been closely involved in a wedding from an Eastern culture, uh, you know that there is much more cultural pressure put on the parents. And in an ancient Near East culture, the wedding wasn't just a big day. It it was an event that could last a week or sometimes even two. And uh, an Asian culture, if if you don't know this already, little different than ours, they're honor-shame based, okay? And so in a a culture like that, a well-done wedding means the parents will be honored, respected, esteemed because of this event. But if things don't go well, they will be shamed. 
there are accounts even of lawsuits happening uh, over missteps like, oh, I don't know, not enough food or not enough wine. Uh, our daughter married someone from an Eastern culture. That was different for us to, to figure out, you know, all of the uh, expectations, you know. Uh, we had to have a special meeting with the parents of the groom and the caterer uh, where, we, where we sampled all the food, okay? Um, I said, pizza would be good. <laughs> and um, I, th- I thought my son-in-law's parents were going to have a heart attack. <laughs> they, they were absolutely mortified uh, that I would even joke about such a thing. I was kidding. I didn't know I don't really want pizza at my daughter's wedding, but they couldn't even get past that I was making a joke about this. This is how serious this is. Well, at this wedding in Cana, for some reason that John doesn't uh, fill us in on, the caterers have run out of wine. We don't know why. Maybe guests, more guests showed up than were expected. Maybe the caterers were just, you know, trying to be really conservative so they didn't buy more wine than was, was needed. They cut it too close. Whatever. And whatever the reason, disaster is looming for this family. And for some reason, Mary feels responsible for this. It seems, if we were to bring it forward into our culture, that that she has either been given or taken on the responsibility of sort of wedding coordinator for this event. And and her desire is to uh, avert disaster, and so she goes to Jesus. She goes to her son. Uh, There's no mention of Mary's husband, Joseph, after the incident where Jesus went missing when he was 12 years old. I don't know if you remember that story, but there's no mention of Joseph after that, which leads most people to believe he's probably died uh, in Jesus's early teen years. And like in so many uh, families, as the oldest child, he now has become the man of the house. He's responsible to take care of things for his mom. We're not sure what Mary expected Jesus to do, Uh, John says that this was the first of his miraculous signs, first of seven that that John records for us. So it doesn't seem likely that Mary, well, she didn't have a record anyway, a track record of of, of seeing Jesus perform miracles. So why would she expect that here? It, It seems more likely that she was just asking him to think of some way to spring this family out of this horrible embarrassment of running out of wine. So Mary goes to Jesus, and she drops this bombshell. They have no more wine. And first century readers uh, who who read this account uh, would have gasped at this part of the story. This is horrible. This is a huge disgrace coming on this family. And Jesus' response to his mother has, well, it's, it's bothersome. Uh, and it's troubled people for, for millennia. 
He says, woman, what has this concern of yours to do with me? I think I said something like this to my mom when I was a kid, and I got clobbered for it by my dad. But what we need to understand is Jesus isn't being disrespectful here. Um, when he was on the cross, he, he used a similar phrase. He said, woman, behold your son, when he was instructing John to, to take care of her. So it's not disrespectful, but even though it's not disrespectful, it's not really warm and, and friendly either because Jesus is distancing himself from his family ties. His primary work is uh, to be about the work of his heavenly father. In both Matthew and Luke's gospel, Jesus says that his family are those who do the will of his heavenly father. Something has shifted uh, in the relationship between Jesus and Mary. And then Jesus adds this. He says, my hour has not yet come. Uh, whenever Jesus uses this term, my hour, which, which we see in John's gospel, he's referring to the cross, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, Jesus came to save us from our sins. The, the cross, resurrection, and ascension were the climax of, of why he came. That was his moment. That was his hour. But this is like three years before his hour came. So why does he, why does he say it here? He did a lot of things between the beginning of his ministry and the cross. Why is this statement a part of this conversation. Well, as John tells the rest of the story, it seems that it's because Jesus is about to do something that's going to point ahead. Remember, John says this is a sign. Jesus is about to do something that's going to point ahead to the time when his hour does arrive. So the next uh, words that are spoken are from Mary to the servants. She says, whatever he tells you, do it. And uh, for a long time, I, I read this as sort of this overconfident Jewish mother, you know, from New York or something. Uh, certain she's going to get her way in this. She will prevail. She's let her son know what the problem is, and she expects him to fix it. He'll come around. Uh, he'll come through. And when he does, she says to the servants, do what he says. But reflecting on this story, I don't really think that's the kind of mother Mary was. And so as I was thinking about it, I, I sort of imagined this this pause in the conversation here. Mary says, there's no more wine. Jesus says, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then I imagine this, this moment where they just look at each other. I don't know what happened in that moment, but I, I imagine that maybe she recalls the angel's words to her when she first learned that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Maybe she recalls Simeon's words in Luke 2 that again stated that this child would accomplish salvation for his people. 
Or maybe she recalled Jesus' own words when he was just 12 years old and, and puzzled that his parents were so concerned about where he was. Didn't, didn't you know? 12-year-old, didn't you know that I would have to be in my father's house? We don't know, but maybe Mary was there at his baptism and heard that voice from heaven saying, this is my son. And, and, and a shift happens in her. I think part of what shifted in Mary was agendas. I think she realized that her agendas for Jesus would never again align with his agenda. Probably wasn't certain what that would look like, but, but she surrendered to it. She wasn't sure what he would do, but I think she was pretty sure that he was going to do something, and so she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verses 6 through 8 are where the, quote, miracle uh, happens, and it's it's so understated here uh, that we can see why dynamis is not the word that John uses. Because this is not a spectacular display of power. Uh, Jesus sees six stone water jars that were for ceremonial washing. Uh, this, this water would be used for... Uh, uh, washing before uh, the feast that was happening, washing the utensils that were going to be used for the meal, washing the hands uh, and, and maybe even feet of, of the guests. John tells us that these stone jars uh, held between 20 and 30 gallons of water each. But as the wedding was well underway, they were out of wine after all. Uh, these jars were no longer full. So Jesus tells the servants to fill them up to the brim and then draw out a cup full for the head steward to taste. I imagine it was as they were drawing out that ladle for the head steward that these servants saw what had happened. I mean, they knew what was in there. They put it in there themselves, but somehow, quietly, with, without making a scene, without even looking to heaven as he often did, right, and praying, somehow, Jesus has turned this water into wine. And when the head steward tasted the wine that had just a few moments ago been water in the wash basin, he was amazed. Not because he knew what had happened. John tells us that he didn't know what happened. The servants knew. The disciples knew. We, we see that in verse 11. They saw Jesus' glory revealed in this. That's not why he was amazed. He was amazed because the wine was so good. I don't drink wine, so I don't know what that's like. Uh... Diet Coke just tastes like Diet Coke, so I can't imagine a really, really good Diet Coke, but this wine was good wine. And apparently the custom was to put out the best wine first, 
to sort of impress all the guests, but once people's palates had been dulled, shall we say, they bring out the lesser wine, the, the, the Ernest and Julio Gallo wine, right? But not here. The best wine was saved for last. And the family was honored. The crisis was averted. And then lastly, John tells us that in this sign, Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, what was it that the disciples saw in this sign? It's clearly more than a neat party trick that, that Jesus did, right? Uh, it's not just Jesus tapping into his divine powers to save uh, a friend of the family from social embarrassment. That's, that's not what's going on here. So what is it that John wants us to see that maybe we struggle to see? So first of all, let, let's, let's talk about wine. Uh, for, for some of us dyed-in-the-wool Baptists, this can be a little hard to wrap our minds around. But if we sort of transport ourselves into um, Old Testament Jewish scriptures and tradition, we can see that wine was a common symbol of God's kingdom, of, of his blessing, of, of joy. Isaiah tells us that the future fulfillment of God's kingdom will be characterized by the abundance of wine in Isaiah 25. The prophets Joel and Amos both say that wine is a symbol of the new covenant blessing that is to come. That, that wine will flow down the mountains like a stream. Psalm 104, Isaiah 55, Judges 9 all speak of wine as a symbol of joy. And so the sign here is that when Jesus uh, performs this miracle, we are right to see it as an announcement of God's kingdom being inaugurated. It's right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. The wine was a, was a sign that something amazing was coming. Secondly, this sign tells us something about old ways and new ways. Have you ever wondered this? Why didn't Jesus fill the old wine containers with wine? They were empty. They were out of wine. Why didn't he just fill the wine containers up? But he didn't. Instead, he chose six stone water jars that were used for ceremonial purification. And we think that those six water jars represent the, the old covenant system of cleaning things on the outside without really dealing with the heart of the matter. I, I think maybe for John's first readers, there may have been a second gasp in this story. The first is when they ran out of wine, but the second may have been when Jesus used these sacred vessels Vessels for, for purification, for something as common as, as wine. But in doing so, Jesus is saying that the old way of doing things is, is going to go away. 
He says, I'm going to do something new. Jeremiah called it a new covenant where I'll deal with the heart. I'm going to take hearts of stone and, and turn them into soft, pliable, responsive hearts. Bible scholars talk a lot about what it means in verse 1 that this all happened on the third day. Kind of skipped over that, but let's talk about that now. In a very plain sense, this wedding happened three days after Jesus' conversation with Nathaniel that we looked at last week. But John has told us that all of this is a sign. So is there something even in this number three that we should pay attention to. Uh, John Johnson says in his commentary on the Gospel of John that the third day is a traditional day for Jewish weddings. The third day in creation was a day of seed bearing. It's the one day God doubly blessed what he had made. Johnson points out that another important uh, third day event, you know what it is? Resurrection. Was it pointing to all of that? Maybe. But, but as I was thinking this week about wine and the number three, here's what I recalled. There are four cups in the Passover Seder. Uh, the, the first cup is the cup of sanctification. The second cup is the cup of deliverance. The fourth cup is the cup of praise. But that third cup is the cup that we remember when we receive communion. We did this last week. It's the cup of salvation or redemption. The third cup is the cup about which Jesus said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I think when Jesus used purification jars and turn their water into wine, I think he may have been pointing ahead to his hour on the cross when he would finally and, and forever pay the price for our sins. No outer purification ritual would ever be needed again. John doesn't say it specifically. But there's a lot there in that number three three days. There's one more symbol I think we should note in the story, and that has to do with abundance. Uh, John tells us that there were six stone jars, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons of water. That's somewhere combined uh, between 120 and 180 gallons. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of wine. Somewhere between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. That is way more wine than these guests were going to drink at this wedding. Why so much? Um, maybe he's looking out for this new uh, couple, this newlywed couple, and, and they could take the wine that wasn't uh, consumed at the, at the wedding and they could sell it because it's, it's really, really good wine, right? And they could, they could buy that little piece of property they've had their eye on or something. Whatever the reason, probably wasn't that. 
What is clear is that Jesus made an abundance of wine. And just three days earlier, Jesus had told Nathanael that he would see some great things, greater things than he had ever seen. He would see the heavens opened. Jesus wanted Nathanael to know that life under an open heaven is abundant life. Nathanael was from Cana. Uh, Maybe he was there at the wedding. Maybe Jesus looked over at him and winked. Watch this. You know, as they're filling it. Wait for it. Mary uh, wasn't asking for an abundance of wine. She would have been happy with enough wine. But at least in this story, Jesus isn't satisfied with just enough. Jesus isn't satisfied with just giving us life. He wants to give us abundant life. Fill the jars to the brim because I want you to have life to the full. And so I see in this story a sign of Jesus announcing a coming kingdom where people whose lives have been changed from the inside out, forgiven of their sins, will experience life to the full, life to the brim, abundant life. Those are some of my thoughts on the sign, but this series that we're in is about conversations with Jesus. So we need to go back and and look just briefly at this conversation between Jesus and his mother. Um, How should this conversation inform the conversations that we have with Jesus? Uh, The first thing I see is this. Uh, It seems in this story that, that Jesus isn't so much moved by uh, our agendas or, or our needs even, as much as he is moved by our faith in his Father's agenda. Uh, Mary came to Jesus with a need, an agenda. We're out of wine. Do something about it. Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? But again, I think something happened in that pregnant pause after Jesus said, my hour has not come. And Mary shifts from do what I need you to do to saying to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She shifts from from her own will to God's will. And we all do this. We all tend to tell God what we want him to do. And so part of what we need to learn from this conversation is to practice that pause and come to terms with his will. Uh, what, what do you want to do in this situation, God? And how do you want to use me in this? And, and then we say to ourselves what, what Mary said. We, we apply what she said. And we say, I'll do whatever, whatever you say. Secondly, I think from this conversation, we should expect Jesus to say to us, I want to do far more, really, than you can imagine. For some reason, we want to domesticate God. 
We, we want to kind of fit him into our little God boxes. And in there, he's limited. There's so much that he can't do in, the, in that little box. But there's so much more than that for us if we will just trust him and, and, and let him out of the little cage we put him in. Paul says in Ephesians 3, I mean, he just breaks into doxology midway through the letter. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Woo! You can hear, Paul didn't write the woo at the end, but I think it's, I think it's implied I've talked before about the differences between expectations and expectancy. Expectations and expectancy. When, when Mary first came to Jesus, she came with expectations, an agenda. But after their brief exchange, she seems to have changed to a posture of expectancy. Do whatever he tells you. I don't know what he's going to say. Do it. It'll be amazing, I'm sure. So in our own conversations with Jesus, we, this is hard, but we have to let loose of our expectations and be open uh, with expectancy to what he wants to do. He'll probably blow our minds if we do that. The last thing I think we learned from this conversation is that we have to be primarily concerned about his glory, not our own. Um, When we come to verse 11 in the story, we learn that the disciples saw something of his glory. Jesus revealed his glory. And the disciples believed. I think Jesus answers our prayers not so much for our happiness as he does for his own glory. And this can be kind of hard for people to grasp if they don't know Jesus. It can sound sort of egotistical on his part, but it's not. See, we were made, we were created to bring glory to God. And because it's what we were made to do, it's really the only thing that will really satisfy us. You talk with somebody who has... Um, he's more concerned with God's glory than their own, and you'll find that they're the happiest people on earth. It's just how it works. So when we come to God in prayer, when we have our own conversations with Jesus, we need to couch all of our requests uh, in what will bring him the most glory. Again, this is really hard at times. At times it means letting go of a loved one that you don't think it should be time. But saying, God, if this will bring you glory, okay. It might be some other kind of a relationship. It might be something about a job that's your dream job, but 
God somehow wants to bring himself more glory in another way. And when we do that, we'll, we'll find greater fulfillment than, than we've ever known. Let me, um, let me lead us in prayer uh, just with these three uh, takeaways in mind. Lord, uh, I'm aware that there are so many deep needs in this room this morning. And for every one of those needs, we can think of ways that we'd like you to address them. We want to take a step back right now and ask you, God, in this situation that I'm facing today, would you help me to surrender to your will, your agenda, even if I can't see what that is? Help me to be okay with it. Even more than okay with it, help me to desire that. Secondly, help me to let go of my expectations and and watch expectantly for you to do even more than I can even imagine. And then, God, whatever you decide to do in this situation that I'm so concerned with today, do it for your glory. In this situation, may your name and your fame be increased because of how you answer it. Give me the faith, Lord, to respond like Mary and the servants, that I would do whatever you tell me. Amen.